Hello, you're listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast. Whether you're at work, driving in your car, or getting your workout on, we hope and pray that what you hear today will fill your spirit. Come, join us as we walk through God's Word together. If you've got your Bibles, and if you have the handouts as well, you'll see that we're going to be coming out of the second chapter of Psalm, and uh, the book of Psalms, and Uh, We will be spending some time talking about the entire chapter. Yeah, I heard somebody say, "Mm." (laughs) "Mmm." So if you uh, are, as you're turning there, um, the lesson aim for today, or the sermon aim, is really twofold. One is that for believers, uh, something would happen is that we... Uh, may see some things that are happening in the world, right? Sometimes you can get discouraged by what you're seeing happening in the world, by the headlines, by some of the decisions, the choices, what countries are doing, all those kinds of things. But as believers, that we would be encouraged that God is still in control and that his plans will not be derailed. But then on the flip side, right, from an unbelieving standpoint or or, uh, those who do not know Christ, Uh, The lesson aim is that you would heed the warning of this particular psalm and that you would respond in the right way to Christ and receive the salvation that he offers. And to be honest, that's the the lesson aim of every sermon to a certain degree, right? It's It's a call to edify the saints. It's a call to evangelize the sinner as well. Uh, And so let's uh, start reading here. Psalm, second chapter. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible, and you can follow along on the screen or on your own device. But there you'll find these words. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we come to you now asking that you would take priority in this part of the service. God, you are the source of our prayer. You're the source of our praise. You're the source of our worship. And you're the source of the word. God, I pray that even as we enter into this time, you would be moving out of our minds those things that would distract, that would obscure, that would block us from hearing what it is your spirit wants to say to us. God, as always, I pray uh, that 
you would do through your word, what only you can do, and that is make sure that it does not return to you void, but it, it accomplishes all that you sent it forth to accomplish. And I especially ask that you not let me mess this up, that you would get me out of the way, that you would preach your word through me so that you can do in your people what it is that you desire to do. God, I pray that at the hearing of your word and that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that our minds would be transformed such that it would change how we think, change what we believe, and ultimately change how we behave. All these things we ask in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And for just a sermon topic, it's simply kiss the sun. Kiss the sun. Uh, just by way of an introduction and just a, a kind of an interesting story, and I'll try to tell this story quick, but when I was in high school, I was at a football game. I was a junior or a senior, somewhere there's about, and you know how you do uh, during football games. You, you're there at the football game, but you're also kind of walking around and strolling around and kind of seeing who's there. And one of my partners had come up to me, and when he came, he was angry. He was hot. He was upset. And when I looked at him, he had nacho cheese spilt from his shirt down to his pants. And so we were like, man, what happened? What happened? He said, man, this dude, as I was walking through, right, coming back to the seat, bumped into me and I spilled my nachos on me. And it got on his shirt and on his clothes. And so it was like, man, that, that's, that's wrong. And, and to be honest, I, I'm not sure, right? I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. He, he wasn't happy with the response of the guy. He felt like it should have been more. I don't think the guy just brushed him off, but I think the guy was like, oh, my bad, it's crowded, things happen, and kind of kept it moving. But my partner, I think he wanted more restitution. And you know, when you at your, your game, you come sharp. You, you know, you come in, again, because you, you're there to see the game, but you're also there to be seen to a certain degree. So, so my, my buddy was angry, and, and you know, he's telling us the story. He's getting us angry. Getting us worked up. And, and look, by no means, I, I'm not, I wasn't a thug. I wasn't a bad guy growing up. But I also wasn't no punk. And so my partner was like, man, let's go find this guy. <laughs> yeah, that's how it started, right? He's like, man, let's go find this guy. And, and again, Mike, I'm not 100% sure when we found him, but we're going to be like, you know, apologize to my man. Or, you know what I'm saying, what we were going to do exactly. But we were going to go find this guy. And so a bunch of us went with my buddy who had the nachos uh, spilt on him. He, we were worked up. We were angry. We were angry for him. Like, no, this ain't right. We're going to fix this. And we're looking for this guy. Well, we can't find him. Can't find him at all. And at some point, we were standing and just kind of facing the field in the, in, the, in the tube that comes up from the concession stands, right? And we're just kind of standing there. And it's me, uh, a couple of the buddies, and the guy who had the nachos spilt on him. And so I'm watching, you know, trying to think, what, what are we going to do now, so-and-so, so-and-so. And then out of the blue, boom, somebody hits me, right? And it knocks the wind out of me. I'm like, oh, I didn't expect it, Mike. Not, again, I'm not a punk, but I didn't expect it. <laughs> and so when I turn and look, 
It's a partner of mine from church that I grew up with. He's a couple of years older than me, but he went to the same high school. He's at the game. He's checking it out. And this guy had gone to the military, came back. And the military, whatever you may think about it, it's going to change you. Yeah. He wasn't a small guy, but when he came back, he had that Uncle Sam build and look to him now. And so I was like, oh, man, what's going up? And, you know, we dapped up and everything and such and so and so. And when I turned around, everybody is looking mean mugging this dude. And I looked. <laughs> and the dude said, he said, he said, oh, he called me Chuck. He said, Chuck, are those guys with you? Yeah, I ain't no punk. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they are with me. And I'll never forget, he said, he said, man, tell them they don't want none of this. <laughs> Y'all don't want none of this. <laughs> And so, you know, obviously they were like, man, do you know this guy? And I was like, yeah, I know this guy, such and so and so. And they were like, man, that's the guy. And, I'm saying, and so we settled it down. He said, man, t tell them guys, they don't, you know what I'm saying? They don't want none of this. And so that's a funny story. It's a, it's my, my parents sometimes even like hearing it because they think it's so funny that the guy I was looking for, when he was just trying to get my attention, knocked the wind out of me. <laughs> Let alone if we was actually going to lay hands on each other, you know, that kind of a thing. Knock the wind out of me just trying to, trying to dap me up and say, what's up? But, but here's the thing, right? I tell this story just to paint this picture because I actually think that is an example of what's happening in the text. There's a group that's angry. And, and they're getting each other angry. They're getting riled up. They're plotting. They're scheming. And they go looking <laughs> for the one who's at the source of their anger. And when they find that one, that one tells them, you don't want none of this. Right? And I feel like in this example, I'm like the psalmist <laughs> who's trying to tell them, no, you don't want none of this. I thought we wanted some, but no, we don't want none of this. And so as we walk through this, right, we're going to look at, as you look at your notes there, you're going to see, we're going to look at a couple of things. We're going to look at the book of Psalms as an overview, and not to belabor it, but I think it's good to set that context. But then we're going to look at a rebellion. We're going to look at a reaction. We're going to look at a response. And then we're going to look at a recommendation. And yes, it is going to be the whole chapter, but we're going to get moving. We're going to go ahead and, and, and come on through this. If y'all are with me, let's get going here. So look, the book of Psalms, right, is one of the most used and one of the best loved probably books of the Bible, primarily because of its nature. And that nature, right, is, is that many of those Psalms express and they explore the emotional highs and lows that we all experience living in this fallen world. Many believers, and even non-believers, interestingly enough, have been comforted by the words found in the book of Psalms, by the verses that are taken from the Psalms. Can we walk through just a few of those? And if I get to yours, it's okay to shout or, or clap or do something like that. Psalm 23 and 1, we know this, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Psalm 27 says that the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength. He's a very present help in the time of trouble. Psalm 46 and 10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I like this one. Psalm 51.10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Psalm 63 and 1 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Can I keep going? I got some more. Can I keep going? Psalm 107 says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Oh. Psalm 119.105 says that your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 122 says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. <laughs> Look at this. I got one last one. It's the last psalm of the book of Psalms, Psalm 150. I'm going to read the entire verse. You can moan if you want to. <clears throat> Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him. This is the part you probably are familiar with, with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and with pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. In other words, let everything that has breath Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. <laughs> the book of Psalms is good, y'all. And we know it's good. We, we, your experience tells me that you are familiar with it and that, and that the book of Psalms has brought encouragement to you. As we've walked through this weary land. But the book of Psalms is doing more than just providing solace, than just comforting us when we move through this life. It's doing more than just encouraging us as we face uncertainty. It's doing more than just reminding us of who God is in times when it's hard to discern him and it seems like we can't see what he's up to. The book of Psalms is not just plucking at the heartstrings of our lived experiences, but it is doing much more than that. Now, to be clear, the entire book of Psalms is made up of a collection of individual psalms that have been written over centuries by various authors, some of which include David and Solomon and Moses and Asaph and a group called the Sons of Korah. And then it was brought together into a collection that we refer to now in our Bibles as the book of Psalms. And the collection is comprised of five subsets or five books. And when studied closely, if you were ever to do so, one would discover that the books each have a theme. 
that the Psalms that are contained in that book all revolve around. So book one is Psalm 3 through Psalm 41, and it details the rise of David to his kingship, to his throne, through conflict, namely Saul. Book two is Psalms 42 through 72, and it depicts the reign of the king. Book three is Psalm, 70, is Psalm 73 through Psalm 89, and it is the reign of David's son, Solomon. Book four is Psalm chapter 90 through 106, and it talks about exile and the hope of restoration. And book five, Psalm 107 through 150 talks about the new era and praise for that restoration. Ha, ah, think about that. That's why Psalm 50 is a praise song. It's talking about having been restored and delivered from exile. Psalm uh, chapter 1 and 2, the one that we're in today, is generally considered kind of an introduction to the entire book of Psalm. So, of course... <laughs> We understand all of this to have been orchestrated by God's spirit. And what becomes evident in the reading of Psalms from 1 all the way through to 150 is that God is using the framework. He's using the framework of the earthly king, David, to communicate a larger narrative about God's eternal king of kings, the Messiah, God's anointed one, his son, Jesus the Christ. Now... We don't have time this morning to go through the Psalms and to prove all of that out. But suffice it to say that if you began reading the book of Psalms and listed out what it says about God's anointed king, what it says about that king's rule, and what it says about that king's kingdom, you would quickly come to realize that there are characteristics of that king, characteristics of that king's kingdom that aren't fulfilled in the life and the reign of David. They're not fulfilled in the life and the reign of Solomon. They, as a matter of fact, they're not fulfilled in any of the subsequent kings of Israel. Which leads you, the reader, to the conclusion that David must be the vehicle by which the reader is being introduced to the idea that there will be one whose kingship and kingdom will be greater than David's. And with that context and background, we now turn our attention to Psalm chapter 2, where we will see, as I mentioned before, these four things. We'll see a rebellion. We will see a reaction. We'll see a response. And then we will see a recommendation. So let's go ahead and get started here. The writer opens the psalm with a question. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain. Some of your translations may render this as, why are the nations in an uproar? Or why do the nations conspire? But whatever your wording is, whatever the translation, what's being conveyed here is the question is, in the question is that the nations are coming together angrily. They've got a bone to pick. They've got an issue. They've got an ax to grind. And it's important to point out that when the Bible speaks of the nations, when it talks about the people, a distinction is being made between the people of God and everyone else. 
in the strict historical context, this distinction would have been the nation of Israel and then the rest of the world. But in a theological context, and now in the light of the New Testament, we understand that now in Christ, this distinction is gone away. And it's not about ethnicity. For Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9 that there is a physical Israel and a spiritual Israel. And that all who are physical Israel are a part of the spiritual Israel. And also, just because you weren't born into Israel, just because you're not a part of the physical Israel, doesn't mean that you can't get into the spiritual Israel. Paul says that not all who are Israel are Israel. And so what we have, right, we have the nations, the people who are raging, who are in an uproar, who are coming together to conspire, and they aren't just acting on their own. Look at the text, right? But the kings and the rulers of the world, of these nations, of these people, are co-signing all of this. It's not like these folks got together and the kings and the rulers didn't know, but it says not only are the people and the nations in an uproar, but the kings and the rulers are right there with them. And the kings are taking a stand, the text says. And the rulers are coming together. And, and these kings, these rulers, these nations, and these people are those who are not connected to God through his son, Jesus Christ. But it is interesting that the writer kind of kind of, he, he kind of spoils it right from the beginning because he lets us know right up front that all of this raging that all of this uproar, all of this commotion, all of this conspiring that the kings, that the rulers, that the nations, and that the people are doing is all in vain. Huh. So get this image in your mind. The nations, the people, the kings, the rulers of the earth, those who are not counted among the family of God, they're all worked up. They are angry, they're in their feelings, and as a result, they are coming together, they are devising, and they are scheming, and they are plotting, and they are planning strategies, but it is all in vain. It is useless. It's pointless. It's hopeless. They won't achieve what it is that they're trying to achieve. But that begs the question, Fernando, what are they trying to achieve? Verse 2 and 3 says that they are coming together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. <laughs> now, there is some imagery that's being used here that's lost on our contemporary context. Right? Wait, a fetter? Oh, what's a fetter? You know what a fetter is. You just don't know that you know what a fetter is. A fetter is a chain that's used to restrain or to confine. It's typically the chain that you see in movies that's around ankles, right? Working on the chain game, that kind of stuff, right? So it allows some movement, but it doesn't allow great range of movement. <clears throat> and when he talks about a cord, a cord is just that. It's an interwoven rope. So you can imagine that if, if you've got fetters on your ankles and you are bound by ropes, then you just can't up and do what you want to do. You can't just go where you want to go. You, you are bound, you are under the control of whoever holds the fetters and the cords. So with that context, what we see 
is that the kings, that the rulers, the nations, the people, they're rebelling against the authority and sovereignty of the Lord and his anointed king. Yeah. And it doesn't take much. It doesn't take very much, right, to realize that if ever this was applicable, it's applicable now. We don't have to think very hard to think of or come up with examples of kings, rulers, nations, and people coming together angrily to push back against, to rail against, to stand against, to protest the authority and sovereignty of God and his anointed Jesus Christ. Whether it's in the area of caring for the least among us or caring for the stranger or foreigner in our midst, if it's in matters of sexuality and gender and marriage or family, in matters of our health, our habits, our entertainment, our finances, or our self-indulgences, our definitions of success and what it means to live a meaningful life in any area that God has spoken and requires us to submit to his son Jesus, the world pushes back. <laughs> but this is not a new phenomenon either. This is as old as the garden with Adam and Eve. And while it may be on its greatest display amongst those who do not know Christ, it can still rear its ugly head in the life of a believer. While the text and the psalm points out those who refuse to bring their lives under the submission of God's authority, we cannot overlook that in certain areas of our own lives, just like the nations of the world, we are guilty of devising and scheming and plotting to resist God's commands. And hear me when I say that we should not be fooled, not for a moment, into thinking that our rebellion, our attempts to tear and break the fetters and cast away the cords of God's words will somehow be looked at differently by the Lord and his anointed. Moving on from the rebellion that we see in verses 1 through 3, looking now at verses 4 through 6, we are now shown God's reaction to this rebellion. And first, we know that it is God because verse 4 says uh, that we are now focusing in on the one who sits or is enthroned in heaven. And this isn't just an arbitrary description. This is communicating a couple of things about this God that we are now focusing on. First, it's letting us know that God is other. <laughs> he and the inhabitants of the world aren't even on the same level. While they're meeting and plotting and angry on the earth, it says that the one who sits in heaven <laughs> sees them. The Lord is so much other than the inhabitants of the world. Isaiah 55 and 8 says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. It also lets us know that God is overwhelming. The only place that comes close to being suitable for him to inhabit is all of the heavens. And they really can't even get the job done. 1 Kings 8 and 27 says, Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. 
Isaiah 66 and 1, the Lord says this, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What house would you build for me? (laughs) So God is other, God is overwhelming, but God is also omniscient. The kings, these rulers, these nations, and the people, they're coming together. They're devising their plans to take a stand against God. They're scheming and plotting, and God sees it all. It's not happening in secret. He knows exactly what they are up to. Proverbs 15 and 3 says that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. And so the one who sits in heaven, the one who is enthroned in heaven, sees what the kings and rulers and nations of the people are up to, and he laughs and holds them in derision. In other words, he scoffs, he, he mocks at them. He, he doesn't worry, he doesn't get anxious, he doesn't start to fret, but he laughs and he scoffs at them. I, I had a mental image of my, in my mind. I've got uh, some older siblings, two older sisters, and at least my memory is, is that one of them uh, would hold my head. And, <laughs> and I'd be trying to punch, right? And I couldn't, I couldn't reach, right? And, and, and so it, to me, it's, it's almost like God is saying, yeah, like that old play, your arms are too short to box with me, right? So you're scheming and you're plotting. I see what you're up to. I laugh and I scoff and I mock at this effort. These folks coming together, proposing to take a stand against me, says God. Hmm. But don't misunderstand what's happening here. God's laughing and scoffing is aimed at the effort. Hmm. His laughing and mocking is aimed at the vanity of the effort. It doesn't imply that he doesn't take rebellion seriously. How do we know this? How do we know this? We'll look back at the text because after laughing, after scoffing, verse 5 says he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury. And look at his response in verse 6. This is what he says in his wrath and in his fury. As for me... I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill or my holy mountain. God is saying so much in just this one statement. Let's see if we can unpack some of it, right? And I love it, I love it, I love it because God doesn't get into a back and forth with the kings and the rulers. He, He doesn't get into a back and forth with the nations and the people. He doesn't get into trying to explain and justify himself. He, he doesn't try to reason with them about why he should be obeyed and why he should be believed and why he should be trusted. He doesn't try to negotiate with them. He doesn't relax some commands and lower the bar on others just to make it more palatable and more acceptable to them. But he simply says, as for me, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. It makes me think about Joshua chapter 24, when the covenant is being renewed and Joshua says, look, judge for yourselves if you think it makes sense to follow God's commands or not. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And instantly, right? He communicates to the world what he thinks of its kings and of its rulers. 
uh, what he thinks of their meetings, what he thinks of their laws, what he thinks of their conventions and their decrees and their conferences and their resolutions. He communicates to them what he thinks about their campaigns and their complaints and their conclusions. He communicates what he thinks about our bumper stickers and our yard signs and our slogans and our mottos, our parades and our rallies, our banners and our shirts, our social media frames and borders. He communicates what he thinks about all of that. By saying, I have installed my king. Choose you this day who you will serve. So we have the rebellion of the world. We have God's reaction to that rebellion. Now, let's look at the response of God's king. Looking at verses 7 through 9, where, this is where the king reveals to us the conversation that he had with God concerning his kingship. And he shares with us that inherent in being the king that God installs on his holy mountain is a special relationship. For God says, you are my son, and today I have become your father. This father-son connection is a special relationship between the Lord and his anointed king. And it implies a unique bond between the Lord and the king. It also implies a shared nature. For him to be the son and the Lord to be the father, there's got to be some commonality, some shared genes, if you would, right? Some shared nature and essence. It also implies, right, that this unique bond is a bond that comes with some special access and some special privilege. The father will not deny the son. Jesus says in the New Testament, which one of you, if your son were to ask for a loaf of bread, would give him a rock? So there's this special bond between the father and the son. The father will grant anything that the son asked for, even if he asked that the nations and all the world, the ones who are rebelling, be given to him, the father will make it so. But wait a minute. <laughs> the kings, the rulers, the nations, the people, we are told they're plotting, they're scheming, they're devising a plan to take a stand against the Lord and his anointed king against the father and against the son because they don't want to be underneath the son. They don't want to be bound by his command. They don't want to have to live underneath his authority. They want to break off the chains. They want to cast off the ropes. They don't want to submit to his kingship. Remember, they're coming together to take a stand. But recall, we were told early in the song that all of these efforts are in vain, that they are useless, that they are hopeless, that they are pointless. And in verse 9 is where we see why. Because those who will resist the anointed king's authority will be broken by his rod of iron and will be dashed to pieces like pottery. All of their posturing. All of their planning, all of their plotting, all of their scheming, all of their devising, all of their strategizing will ultimately come to nothing. 
because they cannot stand under the weight of the rule of the Son. This makes me think also about Matthew 16. This is a familiar, familiar passage, and maybe we'll see it a little bit differently in light of this. This is the passage where Jesus asks, who do men say that I am? And they rattle off some things. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're a prophet, all these kinds of things. And he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter speaks up and says, thou art the Christ, right? the son of God. Now, let me do this a little bit. Right? Christ is not Jesus' last name. Huh. But Christ is the Greek, Christos, for Messiah. And Messiah means anointed, right? So what they were saying is, is that you are the anointed one. Huh. Jesus says, responds, we all know it, right? Man, Simon Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. But my father, wait a minute, there's a link between the father and the son. The Lord and his anointed who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Then he goes on to say that upon this rock I shall build my church. And then he says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. Now, a lot of times we think about that in terms of that means that hell can't bust up in here. But, but gates aren't an offensive thing. Gates are a defensive thing. And what Christ is saying in Matthew, I think, is what is being hinted at in Psalm 2 is that the gates of hell will try to stand, but they will be broken by my iron rod. They won't be able to stand against the rule of the the king. They, They will try to take a stand. But they won't prevail against this thing, this new kingdom that's moving forward. And notice, right, that what the world is doing, I love this, I love this, I love this. In verses 7 through 9, what the world is doing isn't even mentioned in the conversation between the Lord and the king. It's not like they come and he says, hey, did you see what the, the kings and the rulers and the nations are up to? Yeah, I know, they're meeting and they're scheming and they're plotting. What are we going to do? Well, I was thinking, no. It's not even in there. It doesn't enter into the calculus of what God and his anointed are even talking about. They don't even make mention of what the nations are up to. It's not a critical consideration. It's not a significant factor. It is negligible in their formula for redemption. Similarly, saints, we would do well to follow the example of the Lord and the anointed king. And instead of always getting bent out of shape, all in an uproar, crying and moaning every time the world just acts like the world, we should focus more on acting like citizens of the kingdom. Because if the Lord and his anointed ain't worried about it, Why are we worried about it? It's been said that the best and worst of men won't change the master's plan. Finally, finally, after the rebellion, God's reaction and the king's response, the psalmist brings us back full circle to the rulers of the world. We started in the world with the rulers and the nations and the kings and the rulers. We moved to God, to the anointed king, and now we're back to the rulers of the world. 
And he comes back to them with a recommendation. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. The psalmist says, look, <laughs> I've pulled back the curtain and have given you a glimpse into glory so that you can see what's been going on while you all were down here raging and meeting and, and scheming and plotting. The Lord and his anointed king were having their own meeting. <laughs> and because of that meeting, I recommend to you kings and rulers that you need to be wise and make a different choice. Instead of taking a stand against the Lord and against his anointed king, you should, verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Hmm. Now, somebody might be of the mind that says, well, wait a minute, Elder Wright, what kind of God would want to be served in fear? And what kind of rejoicing has trembling as a part of it, right? And to that, I would say as lovingly and as graciously as I can, oh, we need to grow up. We need to grow up. We need to stop getting mad at Scripture because the God it describes doesn't match up with our Disney-fied fairy tale version of God that we are so intent to hold on to. That image of God that, that some of us want to hang on to, it only, he only affirms us. He only makes us feel good about ourselves. He never displeased with us. He's, he's a God of our own making that makes us feel comfortable and okay with how we choose and the decisions that we make in our lives. But remember where these kings and rulers started out. They had no fear of God. Which is why they thought they could stand against him, toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, the God of all creation. They denied his authority, and they declared that they would do what they wanted to do. So, yeah, <laughs> some fear of God is what they needed in their lives because they didn't have it before so that they would respond rightly to him and to his anointed king. And the trembling in their rejoicing is born out of a realization of what their fate almost was. <laughs> it makes me think about, we were watching a comedy special last night with Sinbad, and he was talking about you <laughs> when you do something and you know you almost died, and you're happy that you didn't, but you're shaking because, you, you know, your energy is all worked up and everything. And, 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 and how you get into this place of trembling in your rejoicing because you realize what you just escaped from. That if that thing had been a minute sooner or a minute later or if, if I had zigged instead of zagged or up instead of down, I would have been taken out. Yeah. Yeah. Woo! I'm happy, but hey, I'm shaking, I'm trembling. It could have went either way. <laughs> the psalmist says in verse 12, look, instead of taking a stand, you should kiss the son. Or else you'll be broken by his rod and dashed to pieces. The, the kiss in, in the context would have been an act that showed allegiance 
or submission. For example, in 1 Samuel 10 and 1, it says that Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you leader over his inheritance? And in 1 Kings 19 and 18, God tells Elijah, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. And so what we see, right, is that kissing would have been a ceremonial act that would signify that the kings and the rulers are acknowledging the authority and are pledging their allegiance to God's son, the anointed king. In conclusion, I'm going to end with the last statement of the verse. And the author ends the psalm with a promise. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And that's at the core of the invitation. That if we take refuge in him, if we kiss the son, then we will be blessed. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean all my bills will be paid? Does that mean that all, all, all my sickness and, and, and uh, trouble will go away? No. <laughs> You, you, you got your sight set too low. Hear me when I say, if you get a chance to come to the king of kings, God's anointed son, who is the ruler over all, and the only thing you ask for is some bills to be paid, <laughs> you're missing out on an opportunity. But he stands able to grant life. How foolish would you feel to walk away with a new car when you could have had a new body in eternity? How foolish would it be to look to him only to make these 70, 80 years trouble free when he offers eternity with him in paradise? We stand at a crossroads for some of us. Will we continue to rage and to uproar and stand against the king? Or will we kiss the son? Will we bow in submission? And, and rest assured, look, all of us are fighting against the king's authority somewhere in our lives. Oh, yeah, yeah, I get it. Your name may be in the Lamb's Book of Life, but somewhere you're struggling against what thus saith the Lord. So if we think this is a word for you, you need to, you need to get Jesus, you better get right. Mm, yeah, there's some folks need to find Jesus, they need to get right. But there's also some people who know Jesus who need to get right. <laughs> Because rest assured, rebellion is rebellion. Elder Murph, we were talking about this today, and this will be the closing. We were talking about how God uses godless nations in the Old Testament to bring judgment on his people. But then at the same time, we'll judge those godless nations for what they've done. And I said, man, that makes our head hurt. Right? 
But I said to him, I said, but this is what we have to realize. That's the perfect example and characteristic of a righteous judge. Because in our economy, we would say, well, you did something wrong, but because you helped me out, I'm going to let that slide. That's not righteous judging. But God says, I'm a righteous judge. I deal with wrong where I see it, whether it's my people or not my people. But what we also have is a merciful judge who says, while I could take you completely out, all I'm going to do <laughs> is discipline you in this moment. So I don't know what the Lord may be doing in your heart and in your mind right now. It's less about what I'm saying, more about what the Spirit is saying to you. Here's what I know is happening, because it happens whenever we encounter God's Word. Whenever you encounter God's Word, instantly what comes to mind is the places God's Word is not having authority in your life. I know that. I don't have to be a prophet. I'm not speaking a word. That's just what God's Word does. James says it's a mirror. And when we look in it, it shows us ourselves. Not what we show each other, like you were talking about, not masks and costumes. But when we engage with God's word, it shows us ourselves. So I know without a, a question of a doubt that in your mind are areas of your life that you are not kissing the sun. I stand today like the psalmist. Oh, people, be wise, be warned, lest you perish under the rod of the sun. This is a moment where you can say, I'm sorry, I'm struggling, it's difficult, it's hard, I still desire all those things, but God, I recognize that you have installed your king on your holy mountain. And I submit either my whole entire life for salvation or a part of my life that I've been holding back. I submit to your son, the anointed king. You've been listening to the Solid Word Bible Church podcast, and we trust that you've been blessed. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at solidword.org. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next week.